talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has announced a vaccine passport after the provinces already have. I don't know whether to go to the gym or Disneyland. Here's Scott Thompson! I'm just kidding. Good afternoon. It is 3.09. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will on the board. Ted and Diana in the newsroom. Teddy picks the song today. (laughs) And you know, I spent uh, my formative years in radio, in hit radio in the 80s with the big hair and pants. And I saw Phil Collins in probably this tour too, twice. I remember very vividly playing this song. Why does this song stand out to you? Because to me, it's the song with no hook. I could never remember what the title was. It doesn't matter. It just cooks, and all, no, no. It's one That's of my a great favorite, description. One it of cooks. my one of my favorite Phil Collins songs. I was going to play. I missed again, so it's similar. Yeah. But, but all I know is this: when it was starting, and I was singing, and I had the headphones just blasting the speaker. I looked over at Diana, and her head was nodding in time. Music. That's all I need. If Diana gives the approval. We're good. Oh, we'll like that as well. Can I get that so, I'm telling you, see? <laughs> so if that's all you had to do, Diana, boy, if you'd only known that earlier. <laughs> even just the fights over the thermostat in the newsroom would have oh, all changed. Oh man, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. But hey, no, that that's a great I, song. That really I'm is. hearing that, and, and you know, it, this is exactly what I can tell what you love in music, Ted, with yep. with the big horns yep. and the big brass. Yep. And as soon as I heard that, I'm thinking Earth, Wind, and Fire, oh, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah very true. Uh, all right, great choice. Thank uh, we'll you. Be playing it all afternoon. Thank Teddy you. picking the top hour tune today, and uh, both Diana and Ted will join us around the big round table coming up after the 4:30 news. Lots to talk about there. All right, the poll question of the day. Uh, I guess on the morning show. They were talking about Hallmark uh, Christmas specials. I'm sorry I slept through that segment. But anyway, the poll question of the day, uh, too early. Things. Oh, she's going to wake everybody. Uh, keep the ruckus down. Uh, too early for Christmas TV. Are you kidding me? Oh, man. Uh, I haven't even got the Halloween decorations out. And I don't think Diana's got her Halloween decorations out either. So uh, I do yeah, now. Right now. I do now. <laughs> oh, no. She beat I've you. fallen behind. I yes, do now, I'm yep. falling behind. Really? How much have you got? Like, you got a massive display? No, not really. My husband did it yesterday. Uh, so kudos to him. Uh, we have some stuff I on the front you were lawn. I say, no, it's not very big because my husband did it. I thought that's where you're going. <laughs> no, no, he does a good job. He does a good job. So we've yeah. got a couple of things. And he picked up yesterday uh, an inflatable Halloween lawn. Like it goes on your lawn, one of those oh, blow-up yeah, things. Oh, yeah, I've seen and those. Those are the big things now. It's a sloth holding a pumpkin. Wow. It's very cute, yes. I have never seen that. you got to chain those things down, you know. I know. you got to put an alarm system on those now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need a guard dog for it. Uh, yeah, we're hoping this weekend to uh, get the stuff out uh, here at the Thompson Homestead as well. Uh, and on the way, we'll pull the Christmas stuff out and just leave it out because you know, <laughs> there's about a two-week turnaround there. In the first public statement since the shooting that killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of the movie Rust in New Mexico Thursday, Alec Baldwin writes in a tweet, quote, There are no words to convey my shock and sadness regarding the tragic accident that took the life of Helena Hutchins, a wife, mother, and deeply admired colleague of ours. He says he's fully cooperating with the police investigation, and he's talked to her husband, offering his support. Police say Baldwin was holding the gun that misfired and killed Hutchins, though exactly how that happened isn't yet clear. In a letter to members, the local IATSE union branch says a single round was accidentally fired on set by the principal actor, meaning Alec Baldwin. The letter seems to imply that there wasn't a blank in the gun used by Baldwin, but actual ammunition. That hasn't been confirmed by the production, though, or authorities. Jason Athenson, ABC News, Hollywood. This is uh, just a bizarre story. I mean, you think of how many uh, movie productions, TV productions, whatever, are uh, go on, maybe not so much during a global pandemic, but certainly up until that point, and are obviously now uh, starting to get back into production. How many times uh, these sorts of situations arise and, and the situation is handled uh, perfectly safely? Uh, we still know very, very, very little about this other than it was uh, Alec Baldwin that was holding the gun 
when it went off, striking uh, the the cinematographer Helena Hutchins and injuring uh, the director as well. So uh, again, I think a lot of people are, are just uh, stunned, and and you could imagine how one would feel um, having, you know, how Alec Baldwin must feel thinking that he's carrying something that is uh, safe and and ends up taking a life. Let's bring in Tony Bernardo, executive director of the Canadian Sports Shooting Association, to perhaps uh, add some clarity to to this type of uh, weaponry and, and the difference between real and and prop. Tony, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for having me on. I hope I can shed a little bit of light onto some of the circumstances. Now, we're not sure if this was a prop gun or, in a lot of cases, they use real weaponry but put blanks in it. Uh, is one safer than the other? What can you tell us about uh, real versus fake? No, I mean, the, the real uh, firearms obviously look a lot better than, than fake firearms uh, when you're doing a movie, particularly in, in a period piece like he was working on. But uh, you have to understand that the the rules that surround the use of firearms as props mm-hmm. within the movie industry very very tightly regulated. That this happens, well, virtually never. Yeah, you, you know, think as I as I mentioned at the beginning, when you think of how many of these productions have gone on and 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 none of this, or I guess it does happen occasionally, but certainly we we haven't heard of this in a while. Uh, what what is is does a gun react differently if you take a real gun, put a blank in it? What are you putting in it versus real ammunition? Tell us about well, that process. Okay, it, it depends a lot on the type of firearm that you're dealing with. For some firearms, the ammunition actually cycles the firearm, and they use. Uh, a device in the barrel called a constrictor that creates pressure within the firearm to operate the action, but there's no projectile, no bullet that comes out of the end. Um, on, on a standard blank, there's a standard blank called a five-in-one that they use on the vast majority of, of uh, filming. And the five-in-one is designed to fit a number of different firearms, and there is no projectile in that. Um, it, but like all things to do with firearms, they are never safe. You always have to act safely around them and follow the safety rules. And these rules are rigidly applied in the production of, of movies and television shows. And that's why, of course, that this such an accident so rare. So uh, even with a blank, that's quite dangerous. You don't just willy-nilly start shooting it off as if it's a toy. Oh, no, and, and, and within movie productions, they never shoot it off like it's a toy. Yeah. Um, first of all, the, the prop master controls all props that are on the set. Then you have an armorer, and the armorer is a specialist in the firearms and, and the ammunition that they're using in those firearms. Now, the armorer is absolutely militant about this stuff. You know, you'd swear they were ex-drill sergeants, but they yeah. keep the entire set safe. And, and so there are no live ammunition allowed on the set anywhere, anywhere. Yeah. You're not even allowed to bring a single round of live ammunition onto the set. Any so, speculation as to what you think could have happened here, Tony? I mean, obviously, we it's speculating at this point, but any thoughts? No, not really. You know, like I said, it, it's such a, a rarity that this occurs because the rules are very strict and all the eventualities are generally covered, which of course is why it's rare. Um, so when something like this happens, you, you just shake your head and you wonder, how could this have happened? Um, you know, certainly I think everybody feels for all, all the, the people that were involved in this one, particularly um, the the uh, director and and of course uh, her family and and Mr. Baldwin as well. It's a terrible thing to have an accident like this. Tony Bernardo with us, executive director of the Canadian Sports Shooting Association. Uh, early information still coming in involving a shooting, accidental, uh, involving Alec Baldwin and a director of cinematography on a movie set in New Mexico. Tony, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. Uh, You're very welcome, and have a great weekend. So far, we have Saskatchewan, Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and all three territories, Nunavut, uh, Northwest Territories, and Yukon, who already have put into use 
the national standard for proof of vaccination. All other provinces have uh, agreed and are working hard to come online so that uh, as Canadians look to start traveling again, there will be a standardized proof of vaccination certificate that, as we said, uh, we will be uh, picking up the tab for at the federal level to ensure that all provinces uh, are able to do it. Wow, picking up the tab. Many are asking why this wasn't done uh, rather than calling a uh, federal election way back when, because it would have all been in place by now. All right, let's move on uh, and talk some political science with Peter Wollstonecroft, retired professor of political science, all sorts of stuff to uh, throw around today. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, and uh, best wishes to you. Thank you for uh, taking the time. We always appreciate this. Your thoughts on the federal government announcing the vaccine passport uh, yesterday. We just heard a clip from the prime minister on all of that. Uh, many were saying that this should have started at the top. Uh, we know that everything is handled provincially as, as far as health care and such. But then with the guidance and whatever the federal government needed and then translating it into the into the provincial level, it turns out it's sort of been done the other way where uh, the federal uh, government going to use the uh, provincial systems and then I guess funnel them all into uh, one uh, other uh, piece of identifier run other I guess uh, a watermark or or uh, some sort of code that will pull them all together I guess my question for you is um, if we had not had an election where would we be with this would this already be done by now because it seems that uh, the prime minister is following the provinces as opposed to the provinces following the prime minister here well, yeah, we are following the provinces, but we have a very province-centered system, and a lot of people don't like to recognize that, but that's the way it is in so many areas of mm-hmm. life. Uh, I, I'm just surprised that it's it's happening now and not has not did not happen say two or three months ago. Yeah, it was pretty obvious that we needed some kind of passport, vaccination passport, for people to travel, uh, both internally in Canada and outside of Canada. Uh, so why are we, in the third week of October, just getting, uh, by my count, by less than five provinces, a great majority of the country in terms of population, and three territories? But uh, why are why is it now that uh, there's still some provinces have not said yes? Uh, B.C. had a system, and they're going to have to change what they're doing, uh, as I understand it, to fit into the Canadian picture. And, and I certainly think we should have one passport. We want, don't want to have 10 provinces and three territories with their separate vaccine passports. Because there's another issue here. It's not, it's not clear to me, there, I mean, there's some signals that this will happen, but it's not clear to me that it will happen, that, that the outside world, international uh, countries, will say yes. And until they say yes, it's not much use. It's used in Canada, of course, but it's not used of use for traveling outside of Canada. So I'm, I'm surprised that given the, the evident need to have this happen, that it didn't happen earlier. Uh, again, I will go back to the reason it didn't happen earlier is because we're in the midst of an election campaign. And if you remember, the provinces were all fighting it out. Uh, and there was lots of opposition within each individual province about how this should be done and when it should be done. Uh, we remember here in Ontario, it was quite a contentious uh, time. So it seemed that the prime minister seemed content to to let that continue. And then once this dust had, had settled and the election was over, then he got to it. Yeah, but he, he could have been doing this before the election was called. Yeah. He, you know, so uh, it, it's it's one of those things, one of those mysteries is why it's happening uh, as late as it is to my mind. I would have thought this would have been a fairly early uh, evident need, and there we are. It also speaks to the enormous power of money because, as the prime minister said, we're going to pay the tab. Well, that, always, that works yeah. about every time, doesn't it? I mean, I'd, everybody will go out for dinner with people if that person will say, I'll pay the tab. Well, we're yeah. there almost every time, are we not? <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, what about uh, in regard to uh, kids uh, 5 to 11 be, being uh, administered the Pfizer vaccine? We understand that in, in a couple of weeks we'll get uh, information from the U.S. that they are starting. For us, it seems it's going to be a bit later. The, the, the Prime Minister talked about 
uh, how Health Canada was going to take its time. We remember hearing that prior to the shortages. Do you, will there be a problem, do you think, getting uh, the kids' version of this drug in in a timely manner, similar to the first time? Well, we seem to seem, seem to have enough doses uh, on order. Uh, to me, the question is, what are we going to do with uh, kids who will not be vaccinated because their parents don't want them to be vaccinated? Mm-hmm. Now, when I go to my favorite restaurant for breakfast, as I do most mornings, uh, they want to know this and that, and, uh, and I have to show my certificate uh, to sit in a particular room. Um, so they're following rules which are intended to guarantee the well-being of other people in the facility. So are we going to, what are we going to do with children who are not vaccinated? It's not, it's not at all clear that that's been addressed. And given that there's a, a significant swath of our population that looks like you know, probably 10%, maybe a bit more than that, will refuse to be vaccinated, well, I guess you can take it for granted that about 10% of kids at the end of this, will not be vaccinated. So are they going to be excluded from school? Mm, Good point. Uh, Your thoughts on the announcement Doug Ford, Premier Doug Ford, made today, uh, obviously into uh, about reopening uh, this Monday for bars and restaurants. And then I think what really got the media's attention was he he said, uh, hopefully if the modeling continues and we get those vaccinations into kids, as you're speaking of, uh, by January to March, we could start to see the lifting of, of restrictions, protocol, masking, that sort of thing. Well, I was, I was, he passed himself as being very cautious on this, and this sounds to me like super cautious. Um, like we're opening up, and, we're, and now we've got bar, bars and restaurants and other places, but we're still going to have to follow restrictions on our behavior until the end of into March. I don't know if it was the first of March or the end of March, but let's call it March. And so uh, I, I guess we have to give him credit because he's going to be on the conservative side, but I'm surprised that their data is such that they can roll it out until March of 2022. Uh, we have a lot of uncertainties, and maybe I'm, I'm feeling tied down, but I want it to be opened up as much as possible because I want to get back uh, to doing the kinds of things that I was doing before I got locked down, which I have essentially been for almost two years now. Peter Wilsoncroft with us, retired professor of political science, talking about everything poli-sci in regard to uh, the prime minister and a lot of COVID-19 still. Peter, thanks for the time. As always, be well. Thank you. Thank you. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right. uh, I think this is something that uh, a lot of people have been waiting for for a a period of time. The government of Ontario. Government of Ontario is introducing legislation that will hopefully uh, remove the barriers to those looking for work here who have uh, immigrated. The Ontario government hopes to ease a labor shortage in the province by bringing in a bill that would ease, sorry, make it easier for foreign trained professional and tradespeople to find work in their chosen field. Uh, The Labour Minister said the government intends to propose legislation that will help uh, remove the barriers uh, and uh, said that the proposed changes would apply to some skilled trades and regulated professions outside the healthcare sector. To talk more about all of this, Claudio uh, Claudio Ruiz is with us, Executive Director of Hamilton's Immigrants uh, Immigrants Working Centre and is with us now. Claudio, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you for having me on your show. Thank you. So, Claudio, your thoughts on this at first glance? Uh, we know that this has been an, uh, an ongoing issue for immigrants coming into the province, into the country. What are your thoughts on what's in front of us? Well, I think it's actually a great piece of news because, uh, it, like you mentioned before, we have been saying this for, for decades, I would say now, uh, not only here in the sector, but also various segments of society have been saying that we need to open up the economy for the full participation of internationally trained uh, professionals who are coming to the Canada, to to the country, and I think it's very important because we we cannot forget that we are now as a country uh, competing internationally for talent, and it seems a bit of a waste for all these years that we ha- we had all these people that were capable of working in their field, but. You know, unfortunately, the system kept them kept them excluded. So now I think this is a great a great piece of news. Not not only for newcomers, obviously, but for for us as a country in general, because we are going to be able to uh, to really maximize and extract the the talent that people are bringing to to Canada. 
Plus, it seems odd that we're holding up these restrictions when our immigration system, you know, it demands that these people are very qualified, that they it picks the best and the brightest, uh, unlike the U.S. system, which is a lottery system. So it seems odd to go in and, and pick the best and the brightest and then not allow them to, to, to reach their full potential. Why were these restrictions in place in the first place? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, I mean, the the best the best answer or you know i might may be speak, speculating when i say this but obviously historically there has there has been a, a, some sort of protectionism that it's that has yeah. happened in among some of the professions and i think finally though we are we're finally we're finally coming out of that period and and really realizing that we need to start opening up uh, the, the the opportunities for people to practice in those fields. I mean, right now in Hamilton, for example, for, for us at IWC, we have, we, we've been training people for, I would say, decades now in order to bridge the barriers that they face, for example, when it comes to the language um, portion of their of their integration mm-hmm. but what happens is that so we are we're we're turning people out you know training them to be able to access those fields that are in high demand in canada and in ontario in particular but they are still finding those barriers so i think finally now we are seeing that the system is becoming a little bit it's because it's opening up so uh but but we have been very successful at doing this for now but and that's why we we have uh we're one of those organizations that have been saying that we need to open up the system to be able to uh, to um, to really maximize people's potential. How do you think those professional associations or unions or even the educational institutes or, or institutions are going to react to this? Well, that's going to be that's going to be it's it's going to be interesting. I assume that for the unions, I, I mean, I, I cannot see the unions being upset about it because it's simply going more to, members. Or member exactly yeah. because it's simply going to increase uh, their their um, their membership, and for businesses likewise, I don't see why any business would um would react any other way than welcoming this new change. So I, I think overall it's a win win situation for us as a country and as a province. Uh, it's it specifically said not healthcare, which is another area where we we need help here. Um, different set of circumstances. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. I think this is one of those situations where I, I feel that there may be a little bit of protectionism, and and, and maybe also uh, there may be a certain apprehension. And I mean, I'm uh, speaking as sort of uh, somebody who who has had to access the, the healthcare system. I assume that people people think, well, I don't know if somebody training X country knows the same thing that somebody who graduated from Mac or from uh, from McMaster or from UFT. Well, but my answer to that would be very simple. I mean, just that's why we have a screening process. We have a yeah. system that screens people and we also have access to information from those countries to figure out what their system requires those people to 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 prove in order to be able to practice there. And we we just need to to reduce the duplication that happens within all the systems. So I think it's it's certainly something that uh, it's opening the door. Um, And, you know, I'm hoping that the healthcare system will also realize that they they need to be a bit more inclusive when it comes to that. Because, I mean, just to say one more thing here is we're constantly talking about how rural rural, uh, um, regions of the province are having a hard time trying to retain or attract doctors. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, here we are (laughs) and we have people who would be able to, uh, to maybe fill those gaps. Claudio Ruiz has been with us, Executive Director of Hamilton's Immigrants Working Center, uh, reacting to the Government of Ontario, introducing legislation that will hopefully remove barriers uh, for foreign trained professionals and tradespeople to get working in their chosen field right here in Ontario. Claudio, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, and same to you. Now around the big round table, and uh, we're loving the Burl Lives, the silver and gold. No, we're not. That's what's going to no, start. No, we're not. Our, too uh, early. No, we're not. Stop saying we're loving it. We're not. Go away, Burl. How's that for the lyrics? Go away, Burl. Yes, for now. After Halloween, come back December 1st. Don't speak for me.
All right, Tom. <laughs> How do you really feel, Ted? Yeah, I'm telling you. See, look at me. The veins in my neck are bulging. My face is red. I think uh, Ted's turning green. Oh, wait. <laughs> You know what? He's thinking of shopping. That's why. It's got, oh, he started yeah. thinking about shopping, and that's oh. going to drive anyone crazy, I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, we're all here, and the reason uh, for the Burl <laughs> is, what is Burl short for? That's his name. Burl Ives. No, but is it Burlington? Is it, is it, do you think it's Burl is his real name? Do you think, think it's a, think a short, a shortened Burl version Bert. of something? Oh, let me see. Let me Google. Burl. <laughs> Burl. Burl Ives That's what is it is. Burl. Burl Just Burl. Burl. There you go. Burl you actually... Ivanhoe Ives. <laughs> Just looking at that. See, you guys are absolutely Burlicle. amazing. You want Burlicle. to know information. It's uh-huh. right there at your fingertips got it. the CHML newsroom, I'm telling you. All right, the poll question of the day, and that's how all this started, is they started talking about the Hallmark Christmas things, and yep. I guess they're off on a roll. So is it too early for Christmas TV? Uh, 66% are saying yes. Uh, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I think it, it, obviously it is in the sense that we should wait for at least till Halloween or maybe after. Uh, roll the uh, peanuts things in order. Get the Halloween one out of the way before you start the Christmas one. But since, Ted, you were so vocal, obviously I guess we know where you stand on this. Make it 67%. Don't oh. do it till after, as you said, after Remembrance Day. Give it a little bit of time. I was, I couldn't, well, I should have. I was in a store, I think the end of September, mm. and... Uh, there was already Christmas, like Halloween. First, okay, it's hitting in the face, but yeah. tucked, tucked away in the back was the you know little little Santa chocolate bars and stuff like that. Oh and yeah, I, I mean, I was, I was at a Canadian Tire. They were like in the back corner, the oh. radio, the right behind the Halloween stuff, ready to come out. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, that being said, what is your favorite Christmas TV show? Will? Ooh, uh, you know what? If I'm going to go with a favorite Christmas one, I think I still, I'll still i still get hooked by the old Rudolph special. I'm a yep. Rudolph man myself. I used to cry as a kid. Uh, Diana, what's your favorite? My favorite, uh, I would say also Rudolph, or the the original Grinch would be good, oh, good too. Yes. And That's just, a good one, too. Yeah, just to weigh in on what we were just talking about. Yes, definitely too early for the Christmas stuff. However, I will say I do love Halloween. I do love fall. It's my favorite. Christmas is next, obviously. I love them both. And just today, uh, my mom and I are sending each other Christmas emojis. She's sending them to me as I speak on air right now. Ah, wow. um, because we go to the Nutcracker every year. This is something like, in Toronto. This yep. is something we've yeah. done for, I think, like 15 years now. Great tradition. Um, great tradition. And this year, there's apparently an immersive Nutcracker experience in Toronto, so I just bought tickets for us today, and so we're all Christmassy today. So I'm wow, feel, I'm look feeling at you the, go. So hence the Christmas emojis. Hence the Christmas emojis. Feeling the burl eyes today, but yeah, no, it's got to go before Halloween for sure. All right, uh, let's talk about loosening up of restrictions, uh, which of course happens as of Monday. Also interesting, the Premier was talking by January to March, uh, easing of all restrictions. Let's talk about what we have today. Are you ready to eat out? Uh, we'll start with you, Ted. Are you ready to saddle up at your favorite eating hole? And- yeah, yeah, pretty much. You know, uh, Again, I won't go in a place that's really, really crowded with people just because I don't like, like crowded restaurants and it gets really loud. But yeah, you know... Uh, a nice little mom and pop place, you know, sitting in the corner. Yeah, you know what? I, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Diana's like bouncing off uh, football games and concerts, so you got to be totally ready with this. Are you not, Diana? As soon as they opened, I was there. <laughs> I went yeah. started with the Arkell show back in uh, the summertime, and uh, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm totally comfortable with it. I think people are doing their best, and I think we really have to support the the local businesses for sure. So I'm all on board. I think Will went out last weekend, so you're comfy with it, Will. Yeah, that's right. I went for sushi. Wow. Mm. At a buffet? Mm. Uh, well, not, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I would go the back sushi to... sushi buffet. Yeah, leaning over the little, you know, next to the people in the sneeze guard. No, I don't think I'd go to a buffet yet, but I have gone to a couple coffee shops, and yeah, I ate in, inside at a sushi restaurant, so I'm, e- I'm easing into it. Uh, do you think that's it for the buffet? I think so. Yeah. 
interesting, isn't it? You know, how, how that used to be a part of our lives. Now it's like, mm, so well, what happens when you go to like, you know, the holidays are coming up. Yeah. Or even the holidays are coming up. Right. And you'll, you know, cause we're vaccinated now, like uh, Thanksgiving. So you might see more people gathering around. There's the food all on the table. Do you still feel good getting the carrot and just dipping it into the dip and just everybody picking you? off the big uh, charcuterie board? <laughs> My wife loves the charcuterie. I don't even think it's called that, but you know, we, it's, there's a market now for personal charcuterie boards i'm yes. thinking <laughs> everybody walks around and they've got this thing around their neck and then a board that just hangs in front of them and you can just put your sample on the plate i guess i don't know weren't those called lunchables back in the day <laughs> yes <laughs> radley For had a, a great much line. cheaper price <laughs> radley had a great line one time he said you know uh since when did the deli tray become a charcuterie board <laughs> and of course as you said the price just tripled you yeah. know oh yeah all right. Uh, in regard to the lifting of the restrictions around non-essential travel, obviously we have vaccine passports now. We're getting ready to to travel internationally. We're seeing borders open up. Uh, are you ready? Okay, ready to get into the restaurant, ready to go to uh, see the Thai cats or a concert. Are you ready to get in a airplane? Would you do that, Ted? Uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm not the world's best flyer anyway. And if you actually sit and I, think I'd about- love to be on a plane with you. Uh, no, you wouldn't. Get I gotta go co- to the bathroom. Move over. Get uh, get, move. get the cocktails going. Come on. <laughs> but just the fact that if you sit and think about it, you're you're sitting next to somebody, right? And the air is not the best, and it doesn't circulate. And I understand nah. people have to fly, and I get it. But I'm I. You have to convince me that it is worth my while to get on a plane. Now, if you're talking a road trip to Green Bay to Lambeau Field, now we're talking. <laughs> Now, you know, obviously in Ontario here, we're doing quite well, but do you feel good yet about going to another jurisdiction? No. 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 Whether it's Europe or America. No. Well, first of all, uh, going to Europe is at least, what, six, seven hour flight, maybe more, uh, which I wouldn't do to start with. So this is a double no for me. I think for me, it's more the worry. The plane is, I get exactly what Ted's saying, that recycled air is just, I don't know. It just scares me a a little bit. Um, But I think it's more so when you get there, like it was just so horrifying to see what happened when people were getting stuck at borders. Like what if something happens again or there's a new variant or all of a sudden there's like a mass crush at the border and we can't get home. And I just, these PCR tests as well, like I'm hearing in the States, they're taking quite a long time to come back for people. And so, you know, you don't want to risk, you know, having to take an extra three days to, it's just, I think it's just best to wait, you know, yeah, at least for point. leisure travel. It'll be interesting to see how it does take off uh, because again, a, a lot of the airlines are running on reduced uh, uh, levels of employment as well at this point. So is there enough people to even be there to, to uh, handle all of the increased passengers? Will, are you in or out of the plane? Uh, the plane, you know what? It kind of, it kind of makes me squirmy, but the more I think about it, the planes are supposedly the most controlled environment as far as this goes. I think it, 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 mentally I have some hurdles to get over, but I could get on a plane. And as far as if I get locked down in another country because of some development, I mean, Diana, I I have games on my phone, so I think I'll be all right. (laughs) (laughs) As long as it's on a beach, Will's fine with that. What are we going to do without you here, Will? That's the problem. It's selfish. (laughs) That's a good point. All right. Nobody gets to go unless we're all going, apparently. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We're here because we stayed cautious. We stayed disciplined and we never underestimated this virus. We look to other countries, other provinces. There can be no question that this was and is the right approach. We always put the health and safety of Ontarians first and focused on delivering one of the most successful vaccine rollouts anywhere in the entire world. And because of that, because of the hard work and the selflessness of Ontarians, we can see the end of this pandemic in sight. That was the Premier, of course, at his news conference earlier on today, talking about reopening plans, uh, which is uh, great news. And and, and again, you know, um, you, you can say what you want about the delay and the delay and the delay, but all you have to do is look at the provinces to the left and right of us, and there there's issues. There's still issues, uh, you know, from B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, and then into the Maritimes as well. So, um, you know, as much as we've hated this in the 
poor restaurants and and in those industries that are the hospitality industries that are just getting nailed. Um, now some final relief for them as as of Monday, uh, they're going to start releasing or uh, sorry easing the restrictions to allow them to go back to capacity and hoping by between January and March. And the reason being then is because by then hopefully the kids will be vaccinated and we have more and more people vaccinated as we're just below ninety percent, eighty some odd percent with the first dose. A few other points behind that for this uh, for full dosage. So uh, you know hopefully if uh, and again, everybody goes, March, March, what's going to happen in March? Uh, but again, it's even the dog's up, you know, cranky about it. But at the end of the day, uh, this all depends on things moving forward. And the good news is post-Thanksgiving, things have remained uh, stable or have declined, which is uh, what the Ontario Health Table needed to see and Dr. Moore needed to see in order to get to uh, where we are now. I want to play you a clip of uh, Christine Elliott, and, and uh, this is Health Minister Christine Elliott, and, and pretty much outlining what this all means today and why this is is a, a good time for Ontario to be patting itself on the back on the back for all of the great work that it's done. Uh, here's what the health minister had to say. Effective October 25th at 12:01 a.m., Ontario will lift capacity limits in the vast majority of settings where proof of vaccination is required, including in restaurants, bars, gyms, and indoor meeting and event spaces. At the same time, other settings will be permitted to lift capacity limits if they choose to opt in to require proof of vaccination. This includes settings like personal care services, such as barbershops and salons, and the indoor areas of amusement parks, museums, and galleries. However, proof of vaccination will not be required in settings where people receive medical care, food from grocery stores, or basic medical supplies. At no time will people be denied these services based on their vaccination status. We will continue to monitor the effect of these capacity limits being lifted to evaluate the impact to key public health and health system indicators, particularly over the winter holidays and as students return to school. And in the absence of concerning trends in public health and health care, we will continue to cautiously and gradually lift other public health measures in November 2021 and January, February and March 2022. Notably, if the situation is not deteriorating and in the absence of concerning trends, on January 17, 2022, there would begin a gradual lifting of vaccine certification requirements, Chief Medical Officer of Health directives, and capacity limits in settings where proof of vaccination is not required. Other public health and workplace safety measures, including masking, would remain until March 28, 2022, at which time they will be lifted. We know this is encouraging news for Ontarians who have sacrificed so much over the last 20 months. But we need to remain vigilant. All right, uh, chatting lots uh, today in regard to uh, the reopening, which uh, Ontario's reopening, which starts, uh, starts, continues on Monday with the uh, easing of capacity restrictions in restaurants, bars, and such. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor with the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, and with us now. Tom, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me back again. It's uh, great to great to chat with you. So your thoughts on what we heard this afternoon, are we ready for this? Should we be skeptical? I mean, obviously, people are, uh, depending on who you ask, it could be on either side of this fence. Are we ready for this? Uh, yeah, I, I think we are. I think the, uh, you know, what they're, what they're proposing and, uh, is, 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 as I say, uh, reasonably cautious and it, and it is a progressive approach. Uh, you know, and I think, uh, you know, I think overall we're we're ready for it based on where you know where the case numbers are at at the moment. Uh, but as I said, you know, it, it's going to be really, uh, you know, we're going to have to track what's happening. And there's a you know, uh, based on case numbers, hospitalizations, variants, uh, you know, ICU numbers, all those sorts of things. So so that so uh, overall, I think it's a, a good plan, a cautious plan. Uh, but it but people have to you know also be prepared that. Uh, things might go uh, differently as well. It's amazing the politics of a uh, pandemic, Tom, and, and no matter how cautious Ontario is, 
Um, uh, some people say that it's too cautious, that uh, it should have opened up earlier. And the other interesting uh, point of the news conference was there seemed to be more attention not on this information about Monday, but on the possibility of, uh, of uh, protocol easing come January to March, including masking. So it's amazing how we have... You know, uh, you got to be cautious here. Uh, you know, or rather, you got to open up. It's time. You've been cautious enough. It's time. Yet people are worried what's going to happen four or five months down the road. Should this be a goal for us to work towards, or does this stop us from getting vaccinated? Yeah, you know, I, I agree that it's uh, you know we're in a situation where where you know my but looking at what the numbers have been doing lately you know my sense is that we are at the sort of the tail end of the pandemic and so we've really got to actually be sort of balancing you know sort of the you know easing of restrictions with you know what the implications are for that and and I think uh, you know one of you know I was just looking at the case numbers now that were released and uh, today we we had a had a uh, an uptick in case numbers uh, versus the previous day and uh, you know up until a few days ago, we were down below 400 cases. Today, we're up uh, nearly close to 500 cases. So, you know, things can uh, turn around relatively quickly. So, so I think we've, you know, overall the trend has been uh, a slow, a slow uh, downward, downward trend. What's what's been good, but uh, you know, I think given uh, you know Thanksgiving uh, weekend and then also the easing of restrictions with the uh, the large venues. You know, you know that they, you know, we're at the point where if they had an impact uh, on case numbers, we'd start to see them. And, and I'm hoping that just today's numbers is just a blip versus uh, uh, the start of a, uh, you know, an increase. Uh, the doctor, Dr. Kieran Moore, said that the reason for uh, possibly, and again, this was all, this is all just uh, uh, hoping at this point, if things continue to go in the direction that they are, and as you said, there isn't a blip of some sort, but the reasons for being able to relax uh, protocol come 2022 is because of the rate in which Ontario's vaccination rate is increasing. We've got a uh, high 80% for the first dose. Uh, and a couple of points after that for the second. Uh, also, by then, there'll be a third dose strategy, uh, strategy in place for the boosters. And also, by then, kids will be starting to be vaccinated, 5 to 11 years of age. Is that reason to be optimistic in the new year? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, what we've seen around the world is that, uh, you know, vaccination is really what 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 gives us the opportunity to ease the other restrictions. And so, so you know, having the strategy of, you know, continuing to encourage people to be vaccinated, uh, as well as, you know, I think, you know, most people have found that, uh, you know, their workplaces, if they, if, you know, workplaces, uh, hospitals and other, you know, other facilities are saying, you know, if you want to come here you ne- and you need to be vaccinated, uh, as well as, uh, you know, a range of, uh, range of, uh, businesses you know non-essential businesses as well so so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, impetus there and encouragement for people to be vaccinated and and as you said once you roll out uh, uh, able to roll out for the the under under 12s and then also you know uh, boosters for you know the high, higher risk people at higher risk as well I think you know that that's also laying a good foundation for for the you know uh, easing easing of the other restrictions. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor with the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, talking about the reopening in Ontario, uh, which starts uh, Monday, October 25th. Thomas, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, Yes, thanks, Scott. Thanks. Have a great weekend. You too. Uh, Let's bring in Julie uh, Kwasinski, see what she thinks, Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and with us now. Julie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Well, I hope you're well too, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pretty big day, I'm thinking, for you guys. Is everybody happy at the Canadian Federation of Business at this point? Well, we are relieved that the Ontario government finally said that they're going to lift all these remaining capacity restrictions for small businesses like restaurants, gyms, bowling alleys, and dance studios as of Monday at 12.01 a.m. It's an important step to economic recovery, But it levels the playing field between big and small business. I have to tell you, Scott, this was the most 
big, this was the big issue, the idea that there was an unlevel playing field, that it wasn't fair. And it kind of brought us back to, like, a sequel to a bad movie. Remember last fall when the big box stores yeah, that's were what I was allowed thinking, yeah. to sell anything to everyone in store and small retail, they could only do curbside pickup and delivery. Mm-hmm. So we actually hope that we don't have to go through this again, this big biz versus small biz scenario, that the Ontario government policies will no longer favor large businesses, so we don't have to go through this again. I mean, this could have been done when the capacity restrictions were, were lifted for big businesses like large sporting venues, which was the Friday before the Thanksgiving long weekend. Right. Why wouldn't they have just done it there? Uh, the the excuse we've asked them that, and the excuse they said about that was the big venues like the uh, Scotia Bank centers and stuff are so large, and the ventilation systems are so strong that they were better prepared to be in that position. Well, okay, so let's say that that's true. Then why would you not offer it to a small business and say, "Hey, we'll lift your capacity restrictions if you pass uh, an HVAC test." And if you don't, we'll help you install the right equipment. We'll give you funding. I mean, I don't know if that holds water because that's not really evidence-based. Like, where is does does the whole argument hold water now, Julie? Considering it's only been two weeks and they've turned around and done it anyway. Well, they have shown they've brought forward the data. They did say that they were concerned about. Thanksgiving data about people gathering together, and they wanted to wait the two weeks. And they've done that, and you've seen that our vaccination rates are extremely high, extremely high, both on first dose and second dose. Let me ask you this, Julie, because I was talking to a restaurateur just recently, and they were hoping, and we talked about this too, uh, not too long ago, about the vaccine certificates, passports, whatever you want to call them, when those were introduced on the provincial level a few weeks ago. uh, They thought that, and this is a restaurant, a group of restaurants, that you know, once that hit, that... Uh, they'd start to get lots of people coming in, and instead, it actually dropped. So uh, with this, uh, obviously, lifting of restrictions for restaurants, do you think it's sort of a false positive here that in the end it may not be quite a big a boom as we're thinking? Well, I think a couple points here, Scott. We've reached out to government because a lot of our members have told us that they need some help with funding to implement the vaccine credentials program. Like restaurants need funding for staff. Some are hiring a security person because they're dealing with some unruly customers. Some have lost business and some just don't have uh, spare smart devices lying around to, to actually do the scanning. So it remains to be seen. So in the end, Julie, is that what you've just said to me? And, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm on your no, side no, no, here. But no. is that not the reason why there was a two-week delay in and why the stadiums and, and other places got their uh, restrictions lifted earlier than what the restaurants does? Does that no, not because, explain it? No, because the restaurants were on the same playing field as the large businesses. They were required to screen for vaccine credentials since September 22nd. And they have the same strict health and safety protocols. That's why I was scratching my head. One of the news conferences, and I have to tell you, I have no concept of time anymore. When a reporter (laughs) asked the premier, why did you do this? His answer was something like, there was consensus around the table that this sector had strict protocols in place. That was the answer then. And we got a lot of response from our members, like gyms, for example, and restaurants, saying, well, we have strict health and safety protocols, and we have to screen for vaccine credentials, too. There was no difference there. Let me ask you, uh, on the provi- uh, sorry, on the federal level, the uh, federal government, the prime minister has announced that they're cutting back on the emergency relief funding now that things are slowly starting to pick up. Uh, we've certainly heard, especially from independent business, there's been a labor shortage as people are staying home and, and collecting the emergency funds as opposed, as opposed to getting back to work. Your thoughts on the reduction of these, uh, of these benefits and will that help with the labor shortage? Well, a couple things here. There are so many programs, and I have to tell you, Scott, I'm not going to get into the the acronyms because uh, yeah. people will probably t- turn off their radios. <laughs> 
So anyhow, in a nutshell, there's a tourism and a hardest hit program. But our concern is there are such high barriers to qualify for these subsidies that, say, if you're a business with a loss of 25 or 35% revenue, which is really high, you won't qualify. There's ill-defined eligibility criteria. We're still not exactly sure who is tourism and hospitality, and what about businesses like bowling alleys, dance schools, and gyms who have been really locked down or really hit with capacity restrictions more than other businesses. Newer businesses continue to be shut out of the federal programs. We've been fighting for them to be included, so that fight will continue. And yes, there is the CERB program. So that was essentially $300 a week. Now that will continue, but only if there's a lockdown. And the concern there from CFIB is that, especially a part-time worker, it might have been an incentive for you to stay at home and collect the $300 because you'd get more on it than going back to work. So Mm. that may help on the part-time worker's front. And there's also a hiring benefit that requires only a 10% revenue loss, and it's available to all sectors. So that any business that that has hired new staff since spring of this year should be able to benefit. So there's a lot of things that are part of that federal announcement, so we still need some more details. Julie Kwasinski with us, Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, reacting to uh, the loosening of capacity regulations for Ontario businesses. Julie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. My pleasure. Have a super weekend. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Shortly after the time comes for Health Canada to approve those vaccines, for pediatric use, we will receive millions of doses in Canada, enough to get all kids uh, between 5 and 11 vaccinated as quickly as possible. I want people to be patient because Health Canada is going to be taking the time necessary to ensure that like all vaccines approved for use in Canada, vaccines approved for kids 5 to 11 will be fully safe and effective. That scares me. Not that Health Canada is going to do the right thing, because that's what Health Canada does and what they've been doing forever, so I don't know why we need to reiterate that or why the Prime Minister does, but we might remember the Prime Minister said a year ago, uh, we're going to wait and Health Canada is going to take its time. It's going to take a while to approve this drug. Meanwhile, the U.S. is going to be doing it in two weeks, possibly. Within two weeks, uh, it will be approved for kids. So uh, the prime minister said that, and then we ended up with a shortage. So the reason for the delay had nothing to do with Health Canada. It was a supply issue. Will we see the same thing with the kids' version? How much later will we be than the United States in order to get our kids vaccinated. Uh, remember, again, they started way ahead of us because we didn't have the supply. We eventually caught up because we had a, a huge amount of people jump on the vaccination. But if we had started at the same time, imagine where we had been. Uh, to talk more about pharmacies and their role in the kids' version of all of this, let's bring in Justin Bates, Chief Executive Officer of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, and with us now. Justin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, and you brought me on during happy hour on a Friday, no less. This is oh, crazy. man, if I'd ever thought of that, Justin, I promise I'll never do that again. All right, uh, is there any concern to be worried about shortages here? The Prime Minister's language kind of reminded me of what he said a year ago, and then we hit into a, a period of a very, very short supply. Uh, health, uh, the United States said they're going to have this approved in two weeks. How long is it going to take Health Canada to approve this? So our expectation is that Health Canada will approve this towards the middle to end of November. So if there is a lag between the U.S. and Canada, it shouldn't be a lengthy one. <clears throat> but what you're highlighting is a problem that we're starting to encounter more and more in the Canadian context, which is traditionally we're a tier one country, meaning that we get new launches of medications and supply within the priority groups across the uh, <clears throat> across the, the world. And 
more and more we're becoming a tier two country and entering into areas of vulnerability within our supply chain shortages not having access to the, the most recent medications. And we saw that, as you noted, with the vaccine rollout. Now, while we caught up, we started uh, well behind. So I think, you know, we won't be that far behind. We do know this time around that Pfizer is committed to getting the supply up to Canada very quickly. And we have other options as well to use adult formulation with more dilution because it's about one-third the dose um, if we were approved by Health Canada to do, to do so for a bridge between when we get the pediatric formulation uh, and from Health Canada. Are you concerned that there will be a shortage of the kids' version of this and we'll be rationing it out like we were the first time around? It's always a concern given the recent experience with the vaccination rollout, but I do think the planning this time around has incorporated some of the lessons learned uh, as we initially did the rollout for adults. Um, It's not as complex because we're not dealing with that constant changing of guidelines and eligibility requirements um, and all the supply interruptions. So I I do think that uh, we'll be better prepared and it should be a much smoother rollout uh, this time around. What role will pharmacies play when it comes to vaccinating those 5 to 11 or will they? Well, our expectation is that we will continue to play a prominent role as being one of the more accessible channels for vaccinations. Um, But it will do so in concert with family physicians, pediatricians, and likely a public health initiative that may co-locate clinics within schools, which I do think makes a lot of sense. Um, But we want to give people options, and uh, certainly uh, we have done two and up now for flu, two years and and older uh, for flu shots, so we have lots of experience in managing that age cohort, and uh, we're part of the plans of the rollout. What about the booster? Uh, When will we need a booster? When can we get a booster? Any word on that through the pharmacy? That's an interesting evolution. Uh, I believe two territories uh, within Canada have already started to shift into more general population for a booster uh, with uh, age categories. So I think one was 40 up and the other 70 and up. And I, I don't think we're that far off from a policy around giving boosters to to everyone who would want one. Right now, Ontario is selectively uh, prioritizing those that are immunocompromised on certain medications. And the guidance from the manufacturer uh, is to get that if you qualify within two months. So after two months of your second dose, uh, you would qualify. So that guidance may be updated uh, when we see the real-world evidence of the efficacy. Uh, But at this point, two months after... Uh, those that qualify should get a third shot. You brought up the flu shot. Many saying, like last year, we should make sure we do that. What about that and getting that at pharmacies? Well, the good news is that the regulatory bodies have moved quickly to ensure that we can do co-administration of vaccines with COVID vaccines. Now, the FDA did approve that several months ago. A couple of provinces went before uh, Ontario to permit that. What that basically means now is that if you come in for your flu shot and we have to complete your series to be fully vaccinated, the two shots of COVID vaccine or a third shot, you don't have to come back in 14 days or two days. So that'll help with the convenience Mm. and making sure we increase the vaccination rate. This year, uh, the flu program is expected to be uh, very chaotic in terms of the demand. Um, There's a lot more awareness about vaccinations, which is really important, the value and, and certainly... Uh, what we saw last year was the highest vaccination rate in the province that we've ever seen. And this year, people are going back to work, obviously. We've got things opening up, uh, social activities taking place. So we do expect the, the strain of the flu to be more severe, which will increase the number of incidences of flu. So it will be important to avoid overwhelming hospitals once again with both COVID and the flu. And by doing uh, your part to protect yourself and your families by getting it, that will help uh, alleviate any of the healthcare pressures. And we can get flu shots now at pharmacies? Well, we're doing a priority rollout. So last year, one of the challenges we had was that surge in demand in uh, October. And that was making it very difficult. And it created essentially what we call an artificial shortage, meaning that the manufacturers actually deliver all of the vaccine over a period of time, starting in mid-September to December. So public health isn't sitting on all the the supply, entire supply on day one. So... To manage that, we're focusing on the most vulnerable, making sure that they're prioritized. Seniors, 
kids um, two to five or six right. months to five years of age, those that are immunocompromised, uh, they will open up for the general population uh, beginning in November. So we've actually started All this right. two weeks ago. Many pharmacies have supply today and are booking appointments. All right, and general uh, appointment starts uh, in November. Justin Bates with us, Chief Executive Officer of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, talking about flu shots and vaccines and all of that. Justin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Enjoy your happy hour. What's left of it? It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. All right, let's head down to the U.S. The U.S. House of Representatives has voted to hold Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress. This for defying, uh, defying a subpoena from the committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Uh, he decided not to show. This is the result of that. Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, uh, political analyst for CNN, one uh, White House reporter and host of Just Ask the Question podcast. He is with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well. How are you doing, Scott? You all right? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks so much. So tell us what's going on with Steve Bannon. Does this have legs? Where's it going? Well, what will happen next is he'll be uh, the Department of Justice will investigate and decide whether or not to indict him for criminal contempt. If they indict him for criminal contempt, he'll be able to appear in court or not appear in court because he hasn't been. He, he hasn't wanted to appear in Congress. So then after that, they... If they find that he is guilty, he'll put him on trial and find if he's guilty and they'll sentence him or, or not sentence him. He could, most he's looking at is like 18 months, I think, in, in prison or jail, if, probably prison because it's longer than a year, uh, if, he, if he continues to hold out. The idea is to pressure him into testifying, and there's no indication that whatever pressure they put on him, he's going to testify He's going to thumb his nose at the Justice Department and the U.S. as long as he wants to. He already has, uh, so I wouldn't imagine that it would change. And then again, he could get off with a fine or time served or be found not guilty of criminal contempt. I think that there's uh, adequate predicate for to show that he has broken the law, but it's going to be up to you know the court system now. And he's just stringing it out, as most of the Republicans have regarding the January 6th insurrection, hoping that after 2022 and the midterm elections, that the Republicans will once again be in charge of the House and the Senate, and then all of this will simply go away. So it's, uh, just, it's just a tactic to, to uh, put things off, kick the, you know, the ball down the road a little bit. So obviously they want to him, hear his take on what happened uh, with the January 6th insurrection. Even if they do get him to testify or he decides, whatever, what is his chances of saying something that they're going to want to hear? Well, that's the other thing. <laughs> uh, don't go mixing facts into this narrative. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's exactly what, you know, what's he going to tell them? The, the yeah. real question for the January 6th insurrection is, a lot of, there have been plenty of people that have been charged in the riot with obstruction, with, uh, you know, criminal complaints of all kinds of things. No one's been charged with insurrection and the planners behind it. There's the mid-level planners like the Proud Boys, but who orchestrated all of this? Now, everyone suspects it was Donald Trump and, and his minions in Congress. And there's some indication with what we've seen so far that indeed they are. Those are the people you're going to have to hold accountable so it's more important to go after you know the rudy giuliani's who said trial by combat and the uh, you know the interchangeable trump sons who you know tweedledee and tweedledum who are out there who are stirring it up and who actually planned it all well everyone suspects it's, it's donald trump and i don't know that bannon would actually have that information available to him it would be more likely that his uh, cohorts in congress trump's friends in congress would so what's Donald Trump's reaction to all of this? Donald Trump is a master of, of simply stalling. He's, he's always done that. I mean, yeah. he's never had to pay the piper for anything he's ever done his entire life. So it's just another strategy of trying to hold everybody off, you know, for another day. He's just trying to make money. I mean, all of his actions after the election, his continued support of the big lie and his convincing of some of his minions that, in fact, that he miraculously won. And the real insurrection was in November and January was just a protest is, you know, that that plays to his crowd. And every day, every day, 
And here's the sad part that not many people know, but Donald Trump, when he left office, sold or gave away the email list for every reporter and everyone covering the White House. So I get email after email after email every day from him and his sons and their daughter and their wives and his daughters begging for money. All he's doing right now, what's he, what's he left doing is begging people for money to support his cause and his cause is himself. And he, he's using all of this to just put money in his pockets. Is it time for the Dems to let this go? Is it time for the Dems to move on? I don't think you can move on past this insurrection. I think you have to investigate, indict, and prosecute everyone, including, I think the, the, real, the real criminals in this are the members of Congress who aided and abetted the insurrection. They should be banned from office. They should never be allowed to run for office again, and they should, in fact, be jailed for seditious behavior. To me, Donald Trump is, is past tense, but the Trump movement is not. And all of those people that have used Trump tactics to further their own goals and are merely trying to become the next Donald Trump, those people are the real danger, and they need to be sniffed out, and they need to be put to trial. Brian J. Karam with us, White House reporter, political analyst for CNN, host of Just Ask the Question podcast. Brian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. And that's a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will, Diana, and Ted for contributing. Now we leave it to you, the good CHML listener, to climb up on top of the tower, the CHML soapbox, and have the last word. If they're loosening restrictions for restaurants, I'm going to hit the buffet and loosen my belt.